You're listening to the Bank of Marquis Movie Podcast. I want you to remember that no bastard ever won war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. This is Pat, a salute to a rebel, a man whom the New York Times described in an editorial two days after his death as a legend, spectacular, swaggering, pistol-packing, deeply religious and violently profane, a strange combination of fire and ice. I thought I would stand up here and let you people see if I am as big a son of a bitch as some of you think I am. <laughs> they followed my plan, I'd be there by now. I'd cut off the retreat of every goddamn German and on this island. Are you telling me that I've got to slug it out over those mountains with heavy resistance? Just so you can make a bigger splash than Monty? About 15 minutes, we're going to start turning these boys into fanatics. They'll lose their fear of the Germans. And I hope to God they never lose their fear of me. Commence firing. Where you going, General? Berlin! I'm going to personally shoot that paper-hanging son of a... I would be proud to lead you wonderful guys into battle anytime, anywhere. All right, now you sons of bitches. You know how I feel. That's all. And that, of course, is the trailer for the 1970 American epic biographical war film, Patton, about U.S. General George S. Patton during World War II. It stars George C. Scott as Patton and Carl Malden as General Omar Bradley and was directed by Franklin J. Schaffner from a script by Francis Ford Coppola and Edmund H. North, who based their screenplay on Patton, or a deal in triumph by Ladislav Fargo and Bradley's memoir, A Soldier's Story. Hi, I'm Andy, and I like movies. All kinds of movies. Movies from old Hollywood... That's the films from 1968 and before. New Hollywood, those are the films from 1968 until 2000. And Modern Hollywood, the films from 2000 until today. And today we will look into a New Hollywood film, Patton. Now, attempts to make a film about the life of Patton had been ongoing since he died in 1945. 
but his widow Beatrice resisted. After her death in 1953, producer Frank McCarthy began the project, and the day after Beatrice was buried, the producers contacted the family for help in making the film. But the family refused to provide any assistance to the film's producers. Finally, McCarthy convinced the Army to cooperate. 20th Century Fox bought A Soldier's Story, the 1951 autobiography of General of the Army Omar Bradley, who features prominently in this film, played by Carl Malden. A then relatively unknown Francis Ford Coppola wrote the film script in 1963 based largely on the Patton biography Patton, Ordeal, and Triumph by Ladislav Fargo and on A Soldier's Story. Edmund H. North then was later brought in to help work on the script. Now, the film was originally to be called Blood and Guts, and William Wyler was originally scheduled to direct. However, Wyler quit the film before the planned starting date of January of 1969. Bradley, the only surviving five-star general officer in the United States after the death of Dwight D. Eisenhower, served as a consultant for the film, though the extent of his influence and input into the final script is largely unknown. John Wayne eagerly sought the role of General George S. Patton, but was turned down by producer Frank McCarthy. Rod Steiger said that turning down the patent role was the biggest mistake of his career. Lee Marvin turned down the lead role, and Burt Lancaster turned down the lead due to his anti-war beliefs. Robert Mitchum was offered the lead, but he turned it down saying that George C. Scott would be a better choice. Carl Malden was 15 years older than George C. Scott, when in reality, General Omar Bradley was seven years younger than George S. Patton. Now, Samuel L. Fuller was offered the chance to direct, but turned it down as Fuller, who was Jewish, had once been a corporal under the real Patton in World War II, and despised the general. As Fuller wrote in his autobiography, it would have been hard for me to direct a film glorifying a man I don't like or respect. John Huston, Henry Hathaway, and Fred Zinnemann each declined to direct the film. Now, with Franklin J. Schaffner on board, the film started shooting on February 3, 1969, and was shot at 71 locations in six countries, mostly in Spain. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. We open to a huge American flag and a military person standing in front of it. This is General George S. Patton, and actor George C. Scott S. Patton starts in on the best opening monologue in film history. You see it? I want you to remember that no bastard ever won war by dying for his country. You want it? by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. Men, all this stuff you've heard about America not wanting to fight, wanting to stay out of the war, is a lot of horse dung. Americans traditionally love to fight. All real Americans love 
the sting of battle. So while this speech goes on, and I could listen to this speech in its entirety, let's talk about the actor who puts in one of the greatest single performance in a film of all time, George C. Scott. Actor, director, and producer George C. Scott had a celebrated career both on the stage and on the screen. Though dubbed at times to be difficult to work with, his talent was undeniable. Born in Wise, Virginia on October 18, 1927, his mother died just before his eighth birthday, and he was raised by his father. Scott's original ambition was to be a writer like his favorite author, F. Scott Fitzgerald. While attending Redford High School in Detroit, he wrote many short stories, none of which were published. He tried on many occasions to write a novel, but never completed one to his own satisfaction. After high school, Scott enlisted in the United States Marine Corps, serving from 1945 to 1949. His primary duty was serving as honor guard at military funerals at Arlington National Cemetery. He later said that during his duty at Arlington, I picked up a solid drinking habit that stayed with me from then on. Following military service, Scott enrolled in the University of Missouri on the GI Bill, where he majored in journalism, and then became interested in drama. His first public appearance on stage was as the barrister in a university production of Terrence Radigan's The Winslow Boy. He graduated from the University of Missouri in 1953 with degrees in English and theater. Scott first rose to prominence for his work with Joseph Papp's New York Shakespeare Festival. In 1958, he won an Obie Award for his performance in Children of Darkness, in which he made the first of many appearances opposite his future wife, actress Colleen Durst. In 1957, he landed the title role of Richard III. Play was a success and brought the young actor to the attention of critics. He soon began to get work on television, mostly in live broadcast of plays, and he landed the role of the crafty prosecutor in Anatomy of Murder in 1959. He would earn his first Oscar nomination for this role for Best Supporting Actor. Later that year, he appeared on Broadway in The Andersonville Trial and then The Wall from 1960 to 1961. He then guest starred in episodes of Sunday Showcase, Playhouse 90, Play of the Week, Dow Hour of Great Mysteries, and a Hallmark Hall of Fame production of Winterset. Next on the screen was his wonderful turn in The Hustler, opposite Paul Newman, for which he was nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for the second time, a nomination that he turned down. He returned to Broadway to direct General Seeger in 1962. This show only lasted two performances. He was in much demand for guest shots on TV shows, appearing in episodes of Ben Casey and The Naked City, as well as The Virginian and The Eleventh Hour. He appeared opposite Laurence Olivier and Julie Harris in Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory in a 1961 television production, and also performed in The Merchant of Venice off-Broadway. He had his first lead in a major motion picture in 1963 for The List of Adrian Messenger, and then played General Buck Turgenson in the Stanley Kubrick classic Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Scott and Kubrick would often clash on set with Scott refusing to camp it up on camera. As a compromise, Kubrick had Scott go over the top in rehearsals, assuring Scott that the cameras were off, which was untrue. Scott was one of many stars in the Yellow Rolls Royce in 1964, and then was Abraham in John Huston's The Bible in the beginning in 1966. He co-starred with Tony Curtis in the comedy film Not With My Wife You Don't, 
and as John Proctor in a television version of The Crucible in 1967. Scott would return to Broadway in 67 to direct Dr. Cook's Garden, and then as an actor he appeared in a revival of The Little Foxes, directed by Mike Nichols. He then went back to films and starred in The Flim Flam Man and Petulia, and appeared in the made-for-television movie Mirror Mirror Off the Wall in 1969. In 1970, he would win and famously refuse the Oscar for Best Actor in a Leading Role for portraying George S. Patton in Patton and followed that up with a TV movie adaptation of Jane Eyre and a TV version of the Arthur Miller play The Price, for which he won an Emmy Award. He also directed a TV version of the Andersonville Trial. He next would do They Might Be Giants with Joanne Woodward, He would get his fourth and final Oscar nomination for 1972's The Hospital. He would follow that up, playing the veteran tough cop Kilvinsky in an adaptation of Joseph Wamba's The New Centurions. He then was in a series of box office flops, beginning with Rage in 72, which he both directed and starred in, then Oklahoma Crude, The Day of the Dolphin, which I... I'm hesitant to admit it was the first thing I ever saw him in. Bank Shot, The Savage is Loose, and the big-budget disaster movie The Hindenburg. On Broadway, he had a big hit with Neil Simon's Plaza Suite. Scott directed a production of All God's Chillin' Got Wings in 1975 and played Willie Loman in a 1975 revival of Death of a Salesman, which garnered him a Tony nomination. He also received a Tony Award nomination for his performance as Astrov in a 1973 revival of Uncle Vanya and was in a well-received production of Larry Gelbert's Sly Fox in 1976 based on Ben Johnson's Volpone. He would return to Broadway in 1980 for Tricks of the Trade with Trish Vanderveer. However, that show ran for a single performance. However, a 1984 Broadway revival of Coward's Design for Living, which he directed, ran for 245 performances. Back on the screen, he played the Beast in a TV movie version of Beauty and the Beast in 1976, Islands in the Stream in 77, which was based on Hemingway's posthumously published novel. He had a cameo in Cross Swords in 77, then the lead in Movie Movie, directed by Stanley Donnan, and that's a film that, boy, I wanted to be good, and it just, it just isn't. And then he was in the very adult film Hardcore, about a father who finds out his daughter has been doing hardcore pornography. Scott starred in the mystery horror thriller The Changeling, and then teamed up with Marlon Brando, of all people, for a film called The Formula, which is really a crime thriller, but really is an excuse for a two-handed film with Brando and Scott talking, which I was like, sign me up for that. That's great. Any movie that just has Brando and George C. Scott talking, I'm I'm all in. And it was awful. And actually, I just rewatched this film eh, within the last year, and it's still awful. He was fantastic as General Harlan Bach in Taps, about a military high school that is taken over by the students, uh, which really launched the careers of Timothy Hutton, Sean Penn, and Tom Cruise. He was very good as Fagin in a TV production of Oliver Twist in 1982. On Broadway, he starred in and directed a successful revival of Noel Coward's Present Laughter, Oh, and then was in the god-awful Firestarter, miscast as Native American John Rainbird in 1984, 
Uh, this film starred Drew Barrymore. And again, I watched this film within the last year, and it is, yeah, it's awful. Later in 84, he starred as Ebenezer Scrooge, and I think one of the better adaptations of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. He was nominated for Emmy Award for that role, and then played the title role in the made-for-television movie Mussolini, The Untold Story. On his insistence that he didn't really do the character of George S. Patton full justice, he starred in the made-for-television sequel of The Last Days of Patton in 1986, and it was disappointing. Uh, he was in a TV production of Murders in the Rue Morgue in 1986, TV movie Pals in 87, and played the lead role in the TV series Mr. President, which ran for 24 episodes. And I have to admit, I don't remember that at all, which is odd, because I was a pretty heavy TV viewer at the time. And George C. Scott doing TV, I would have tuned that in, so it must have been awful. He played Kinderman in the As Bad As You Would Think It Would Be, The Exorcist 3. Did a voice in the Disney animated sequel, The Rescuers Down Under, in 1990. On Broadway, he directed and appeared in a revival of On Borrowed Time. He was in the TV series Traps in 1994. Again, I don't remember George C. Scott doing a TV series in 1994. It only lasted five episodes, so maybe that's why. And then was in the short-lived TV series New York News. Again, didn't see that one either, and that lasted three episodes. Okay. By this time, he was taking grandfatherly or old men sage roles in movies like Tyson, Angus, Country Justice and then played Captain Edward Smith in a TV movie version of Titanic in 1996. I remember that one. And was darn good in a TV movie production of 12 Angry Men in 1997, the role that Lee J. Cobb played in the 1957 film. And Scott would win an Emmy for that, and deservedly so. He was great. He had supporting roles in Gloria in 1999 and Rocky Marciano. And then his final performance was as Matthew Harrison Brady opposite Jack Lemon as Henry Drummond in a TV movie version of Inherit the Wind. Lemon also starred with him in 12 Angry Men. Now, Scott did have a reputation for being moody and mercurial while on set, and after suffering a series of heart attacks, he died on September 22, 1999, at the age of 71 of a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm. Our people salute you, General for your brilliant amphibious landing on the continent of Africa, and uh, for your enlightened administration of our country. Patton is being feted by the Moroccans. I've enjoyed being here, Excellency. Naturally, I'd prefer to be in Tunisia fighting the Germans. This pretty much sums up Patton. These men fight at Kasserine? Yes, sir. General Omar Bradley, Carl Malden, assesses the troops in North Africa. For the American army to take a licking like that the first time it bat against the Germans. <laughs> Up against Rommel, what we need is the best tank man we've got. Somebody tough enough to pull this outfit together. Patton? Possibly. God help us. Bradley calls for Patton. Who the hell's kicking me in the butt? Oh, sorry. Uh, sir. What were you doing down there, soldier? Trying to get some sleep, sir. Well, get back down there, son. You're the only son of a bitch in this headquarters knows what he's trying to do. Yes, sir. Bradley and Patton get down to business. Tell me, Brad, uh, what happened at Cassery? I heard it was a shambles. Apparently, everything went wrong. 
We'd send over a 75 millimeter shell, the Krauts would return an 88. Their tanks are diesels. And even when we managed to hit one of them, they kept on running our tanks. The men call them purple heart boxes. So while Patton takes over with Bradley as his number two, let's talk about one of the finest and most underrated performers of all time, Carl Malden. Born to a Czech mother and a Serbian father in Chicago as Mladen Sekulovic, on March 22, 1912, Carl Malden did not speak English until he was in kindergarten. After graduating from high school in the nearby steel town of Gary, Indiana, Malden worked in the industry for three years until 1934, when he was frustrated with the drudgery of manual labor. He left to attend the Arkansas State Teachers College, then the Goodman Theater Dramatic School, and never looked back. Three years later, he went to New York City to find fame and fortune. Malden rapidly became involved with the Group Theater, an organization of actors and directors who were changing the face of theater, where he attracted the attention of director Elia Kazan. His acting career was interrupted in 1942 by the Second World War, during which he served as a non-commissioned officer in the 8th Air Force. He was discharged in 1946. After the war, Malden resumed his acting career on Broadway, playing a small supporting role in the short-lived Maxwell Anderson play Truckline Cafe with a then-unknown actor by the name of Marlon Brando. The next year, director Elia Kazan gave Malden a co-starring role in Arthur Miller's breakout play All My Sons. And by the end of the year, he had joined the legendary original cast of Tennessee Williams' landmark drama A Streetcar Named Desire, directed by Kazan and starring Marlon Brando. He appeared in a small role in the film noir Kiss of Death, and then was in The Gunfighter and Where the Sidewalk Ends, and The Halls of Montezuma. But his film career really took off when he was in the film adaptation of A Streetcar Named Desire, opposite Marlon Brando, Vivian Lee, and Kim Hunter. For his performance in A Streetcar Named Desire, Malden won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Next up was the film The Sellout, Diplomatic Courier, Operation Secret, Ruby Gentry, and then Inspector LaRue in Alfred Hitchcock's I Confess in 1953. And if you haven't seen this little gem of a Hitchcock film, do yourself a favor and check it out. He next was in a production of Phantom of the Rue Morgue in 1954 and got his second Academy Award nomination playing Father Barry in On the Waterfront. He would play John Pearsall in Fear Strikes Out in 57, Frenchie Plante in The Hanging Tree in 59, Reverend Paul Ford in Pollyanna in 1960, and Father Devlin opposite Tony Curtis in The Great Imposter in 1960. He would appear in Marlon Brando's directorial debut, The Western One-Eyed Jacks in 1961, The Birdman of Alcatraz in 62, Herbie Summers in a wonderful film adaptation of Gypsy in 62, as well as Zebulon Prescott, the patriarch of the Prescott family in the epic western How the West Was Won. He was Walter Lucas in Come Fly With Me in 63, Captain Wessels in the western Cheyenne Autumn in 64, Shooter in The Cincinnati Kid in 65, Tom Fitch in Nevada Smith in 66, Julian Wall in the Dean Martin Mad Helm film Murderer's Row in 66, Key Case Milne in Hotel in 67, Omar Bradley in Patton in 70, Walter Buckman in The Wild Rovers in 71, 
and then played Detective Lieutenant Mike Stone in 120 episodes of The Streets of San Francisco, first opposite a young Michael Douglas, and later on Richard Hatch. Streets of San Francisco is one of those 1970s detective shows that I never missed. For his work as Lieutenant Stone, Malden was nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Drama Series four times, but never won. In the 1970s and 1980s, a trench coat and fedora wearing Malden was famous, or maybe infamous, for his American Express Traveler's Checks commercials with his tagline, Don't Leave Home Without Them. He then was in the TV miniseries Captain's Courageous in 1977, and then was the only really good thing in the really bad sequel, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, starring Michael Caine and Sally Field in 1979. And then he, as well as everybody else, were really bad in the really bad disaster film Meteor later on that same year, and then was in the detective series Skag in 1980, which didn't last long. Played, believe it or not, Herb Brooks in Miracle on Ice in 1981, story of the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. He was in the ill-fated The Sting 2 in 1983. Again, he was probably the only really decent thing in that film. Was in the murder mystery Fatal Vision, opposite Eva Marie Saint. Played the walrus in the TV miniseries Alice in Wonderland in 1985. This version of Alice in Wonderland also had such stars as Red Buttons, Artie Johnson, Robert Morley, Roddy McDowell, Sherman Hensley, Donald O'Connor, Sally Struthers, Donna Mills, and Shelley Winters. Played Barbara Streisand's father in Nuts in 1987. Leon Klinghoffer, the ill-fated passenger in the hijacking of the Achille Loro in 1989. Reprised his role as Mike Stone in Back to the Streets of San Francisco in 1992. And his final screen appearance was as Father Thomas Kavanaugh in an episode of The West Wing in 2000. He would pass away at his home in Los Angeles on July 1st, 2009, at the age of 97. For his contribution to the film industry, Malden has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and was inducted into the Western Performers Hall of Fame at the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in Oklahoma City in November 2018. Ah, doctor. Sir? I understand you have two cases of uh, self-inflicted wounds. Yes, sir, we do. Uh, get them out of here. Well, sir, one of them has developed a very serious infection. Well, I don't care if he dies. Just get him someplace but out of here. It doesn't belong in the same building with men who've been wounded in battle. Patton goes to work. Rommel's out there somewhere waiting for me. Yes, sir. You know... I had my way, I'd send that genius son of a bitch an engraved invitation and iambic pentameter. A challenge in two standards to meet me out there alone in the desert. I'll deliver it. Now, in a wonderfully staged action scene by director Franklin J. Schaffner, Patton and Rommel fight. Commence firing, fired will. Commence firing, fired will. Commence firing, fired will. excited by the battle. He was made for war. Rommel. 
magnificent bastard. I read your book! Patton is interviewed by the press. Well, the people at home are interested in you, General. They're curious about your pearl handle revolvers. They're ivory. Only a pimp from a cheap New Orleans whorehouse would carry a pearl handle pistol. <laughs> what about your language, General? Well, when I want it to stick, I give it to them loud and dirty. Then they'll remember it. What do you troops feel about that, General? Damn it, I don't want these men to love me. I want them to fight for me. Ernie Pyle says you have a secret weapon here in Sicily. General Bradley. The GI General, that's what Ernie calls him. Omar Bradley's no secret. He's a damn fine commander. Bradley calls Patton on the carpet. But I do know that you're gambling with the lives of those boys just so you can beat Montgomery into Messina. And if you pull it off, you're a big hero. But if you don't, what happens to them? The ordinary combat soldier. He doesn't share in your dreams of glory. He's stuck here. He's stuck living out every day, day to day, with death tugging at his elbow. There's one big difference between you and me, George. I do this job because I've been trained to do it. You do it because you love it. This is an Oscar-worthy supporting performance by Mould. And he wasn't even nominated. There he goes, old blood and guts. Yeah, our blood. His guts. The battle was as bloody and casually ridden as Bradley had feared. Where are you from, uh, Gomez? California, sir. Me too. Where were you hit? In the chest. Patton visits some of his troops in the Army Hospital. What's the matter with you? Uh, I guess I just can't take it, sir. What did you say? It's my nerves, sir. I, I, I just can't stand the shelling anymore. Patton will have none of that. Your nerves? Well, hell, you're just a goddamn coward. sitting here crying in front of these brave men who've been wounded in battle. Shut up! Don't admit this yellow bastard. Nothing wrong with him. We won't have sons of bitches who are afraid to fight stinking up this place of honor. Even though Patton is triumphant on the field, his actions towards his men and the slapping of the soldier in the hospital has consequences. I'm sick of sitting around this royal doghouse. We've taken Sicily. I'm ready for a new assignment. Well, maybe you've got it. Here's a radio message just came in. I've been relieved. They've relieved me from command of the 7th Army. Time for an intermission. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Show starts in one minute.
please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. And now, on with the show. Settle back now, content, comfortable, well-fed, and ready for some fine entertainment. Is everybody happy? Then let's go. It's showtime. And we're back. Now, this film actually had an intermission, and you just heard the tail end of the intermission music written by Jerry Goldsmith. So while we pick back up on the action, let's speak about the composer of this film, the great Jerry Goldsmith. A legendary name in film and television scoring, Jerry Goldsmith was nominated for six Grammy Awards, five Primetime Emmy Awards, nine Golden Globe Awards, four British Academy Film Awards, and 18... Academy Awards, winning just once in 1976 for The Omen. Born on February 10th, 1929 in Los Angeles, he studied piano with Jacob Gimple and attended classes in film composition at the University of Southern California. In 1950, he was employed as a clerk typist in the music department at CBS. There, he was given his first assignment as a composer for radio shows such as Romance and CBS Radio Workshop. He wrote one score a week for those shows, which were performed live. He stayed with CBS until 1960 and scored, amongst other things, The Twilight Zone. He then would move on to Review Studios and then to MGM Studios and would compose music for such television shows as Dr. Kildare, Thriller, and The Man from UNCLE. His feature film debut occurred when he composed the music for the Western Black Patch in 1957 and the science fiction film City of Fear in 1959. In 1962, Goldsmith would experiment with atonal and dissonant sounds for the score of the biopic Freud, which would be his first nomination for Best Musical Score. He then would compose the theme music for the TV series The Man from Uncle and would do such films as Rio Conchos, the political thriller Seven Days in May, the romantic drama A Patch of Blue, the war film In Harm's Way, the World War I air combat film The Blue Max, the naval war drama The Sand Pebbles, the western hour The Gun, and the police mystery film The Detective. And his scores for both Patch of Blue and The Sam Pebbles were nominated for Oscar. He also received Emmy nominations for his score for Thriller and The Man from Uncle. In 1969, Goldsmith would gain worldwide attention for his score for the science fiction film Planet of the Apes, for which he would once again be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Score. Uh, hopping around his IMDb, it will be here all day. He was nominated for Patton in 71. Papillon in 74, Chinatown in 75, The Wind in the Lion in 76, and would finally break through with winning the Oscar for Best Original Score for The Omen in 1977. 
He would team up with director Franklin J. Schaffner again for 1979's The Boys from Brazil, and would be nominated again for Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1980, Poltergeist in 83, Under Fire in 84, Hoosiers in 87, Basic Instinct in 93, L.A. Confidential in 98, and Mulan in 1999. On television, he would receive Emmy nominations for his composition for The Red Pony, the miniseries QB7, the made-for-TV movie Babe, the miniseries Masada in 1981, and the title music for the TV series Star Trek Voyager in 1995. Besides film and TV scores, Goldsmith was known for his score for the simulator attraction Soarin' Over California, which debuted at the Disneyland Resort in 2001, and then the same attraction Soarin' Around the World. Goldsmith's final cinematic score composed during his declining health was the critically acclaimed music for the live-action animated film Looney Tunes Back in Action. Goldsmith would collaborate with many, many directors, including Robert Wise, Howard Hawks, Otto Preminger, Joe Dante, Richard Donner, Richard Fleischer, Ridley Scott, Steven Spielberg, Michael Crichton, Roman Polanski, Gordon Douglas, Paul Verhoeven, and of course, Franklin J. Schaffner, who directed Patton. Considered one of film music history's most innovative and influential composers, Goldsmith died after a long bout with colon cancer on July 21, 2004, at the age of 75. No word from General Eisenhower? No, sir. While the Allied forces have sidelined Patton for slapping the soldier, the Germans refuse to believe it. Patton tries to get back onto General Eisenhower's good side so he can lead the D-Day invasion. We're going to let it leak out that you are here undercover, that you're preparing to invade at the Pas de Calais. We hope to pin down the German 15th Army there so they can't be used against us at Normandy. Is that all you people think I'm good for? We're going to build an army of 12 divisions around you. All fictitious, of course. Dummy troop concentrations, dummy landing craft, simulated radio traffic. Patton is to be the decoy, a further blow to Patton's ego. What do I do there? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Frankly, George, you're on probation. If you take my advice, you'll behave yourself. Remember. Your worst enemy is your own big mouth. So while Patton does menial work sitting out the D-Day invasion, let's speak about the director of this film, Franklin J. Schaffner. Franklin James Schaffner is one of those directors that I had no idea I had seen as much of his work as I have seen until I started doing research for this podcast. He was born in Tokyo, Japan, and lived the first six years of his life there as the son of missionaries. He returned to the United States, and his family settled in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and eventually graduated from Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster. As a student, Schaffner was active in the drama program, where he appeared in 11 plays and served as president of the Green Room Club. He then studied law at Columbia University in New York City, but his education was interrupted by service with the United States Navy in World War II. After the war, he returned to the United States and worked for the World Peace Organization, then as an assistant director for the documentary film series, The March of Time. He became a director in the News and Public Affairs Department of CBS Televisions, where his jobs included covering sports, beauty pageants, and public service programs. In 1950, he directed The Traitor, the first episode of Ford Theater. He also did adaptations of Alice in Wonderland and Treasure Island. He then directed Thunder on Sycamore Street for Studio One, 
and then directed a television production of 12 Angry Men, which won Schaffner an Emmy for Best Director. He would end up directing 110 episodes of that show. He directed the Edward R. Murrow show Person to Person and was the original director on the series The Defenders. In 1960, he directed Alan Drury's stage play Advise and Consent, which earned him the Best Director Award in the Variety Critics Poll. He was the director who collaborated with First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy in a tour of the White House with Mrs. John F. Kennedy. This broadcast special reached over 80 million viewers worldwide. Schaffner's contributions to this production earned him a nomination in 1963 by the Directors Guild of America for its award in the category of Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Television. In January 1960, Schaffner signed a multi-picture deal with Columbia Pictures. He directed The Good Years in 1962 for TV with Henry Fonda and Lucille Ball, The Stripper in 1963, The Best Man in 64, and The Warlord in 65. In 66, he did The Double Man with Yul Brynner before coming to direct the critically acclaimed science fiction film Planet of the Apes starring Charlton Heston. And from there on, he was on a bit of a roll. In order, he did Planet of the Apes, Patton, for which he won the Oscar for Best Director, Nicholas and Alexandra, Papillon, Islands in the Stream, and The Boys from Brazil. And at that point, his career petered out fairly quickly after that. In 1981, he made Sphinx, a thriller set in Egypt starring... Leslie Ann Down and Frank Langella. The awful Yes, Giorgio with famed opera star Luciano Pavarotti in his first major screen starring role and his last. He then took a bit of a break from filmmaking until 1987 where he ended his career with two critically well-received films, Lionheart in 1987 and Welcome Home in 1999. From 1987 to 1989, he was the president of the Directors Guild of America. Consensus is that Schaffner's contribution to film was his visual sense, as he was a master of the tracking shot. And if you want to see that in action, look no further than the walk across the desert by the three astronauts at the beginning of Planet of the Apes. Schaffner died on July 2nd, 1989, at the age of 69 from lung cancer. I feel like destined to achieve some great thing what i don't know but this last incident is so trivial in its nature and so terrible in its effect it can't be the result of an accident it has to be the work of god the last great opportunity of a lifetime an entire world at war and i'm left out of it god will not permit this to happen i am going to be allowed to fulfill my destiny, his will be done. Finally, Omar Bradley, once Patton's subordinate and now his superior, calls for him. Hi, how are you, George? Pretty fair, Brad. How are you? Fine. Well, my, my. Isn't this plush? Looks like you're uh, bucking for Archbishop. Well, Chet Hansen had this rig built for me. George, sit down. Ike wanted me to talk to you. I told him that you and I could level with each other. That's right. Bradley sets him straight. With your brains and my screwy ideas, we'll make a wonderful team. We proved that in Sicily. I tell you the truth, if I'd been your senior in Sicily, I would have relieved you. Patton is back in the game. 
George would at least have the courtesy to let us know where he's going. Pat, old dog, same tricks. Good God, look at that. Where you going, General? Berlin. I'm going to personally shoot that paper-hanging son of a bitch! Bradley couldn't be happier. Give George a headline and he's good for another 30 miles. In the chaos, Patton takes charge. Now look, let's pay attention. We're going to clean this mess up right now. Let's move this vehicle out this way, this one out this way. Back that thing up there. And we'll take this one here. All right, get up off your ass. Let's go now. Bradley couldn't be happier, but it has bad news. George, you'd make a good traffic cop. <laughs> George, this drive to the Zane has been absolutely magnificent, but I'm sorry to say I'm going to have to slow you down. What the hell for? Well, for the time being, we're going to have to cut off your supplies. Bradley sets Patton straight again. You won't let me kill the enemy? Why did you pick me to command? I didn't pick you. Ike picked you. George, you have performed brilliantly. You are loyal, dedicated. You're one of the best field commanders I've got, but you don't know when to shut up. George, you're a pain in the neck. After a battle, Patton reflects. Not any color left, not even the red of blood. Only the snow. Look at this card. I love it. God help me, I do love it so. I love it more than my life. Patton goes on to lead his troops, including at the Battle of the Bulge. Sir General McAuliffe turned down a German surrender demand. You know what he said? What? He said nuts. <laughs> Keep moving, Colonel. A man that eloquent has to be saved. The war is over, but Patton's mouth continues to get him in trouble. Sir, there's a call on your line from Supreme Headquarters, General Smith. Beetle? Ike is furious. How could you possibly compare the Republicans and Democrats to the Nazi Party? And this statement that you refuse to denazify has everybody screaming, the Russians, the British, everybody. Well, the hell with the mongoloid Russians. We've given them Berlin, we've given them Prague, God knows what else. Are we gonna let them dictate policy too? George, don't be a fool. The war in Europe is over, Washington dictates policy. Patton is finally relieved of command by Eisenhower. Um, All good things must come to an end. And the best thing that's happened to me in my life has been, uh, uh, the honor and, uh, privilege of commanding the Third Army. Patton and Bradley have one last moment together. After all I've been through, imagine getting killed by an ox. 
Oh, Brad, there's only one proper way for a professional soldier to die. That's from the last bullet of the last battle of the last... At least, Third Army earned its pay. In our drive across Europe, we liberated 12,000 cities and towns, inflicted a million and a half enemy casualties. I have a feeling that from now on, just being a good soldier won't mean a thing. I'm afraid we're going to have to be diplomats, administrators, you name it. God help us. <laughs> Bradley reminds Patton. George, I want to say one thing. You've done a magnificent job here in Europe. That's right, George. I think that soldier you slapped back there in Sicily did more to win the war than any other private in the army. Patton reminisces. For over a thousand years, Roman conquerors returning from the wars enjoyed the honor of a triumph, a tumultuous parade. In the procession, came trumpeters and musicians and strange animals from the conquered territories, together with carts laden with treasure and captured armaments. The conqueror rode in a triumphal chariot, the dazed prisoners walking in chains before him. Sometimes his children, robed in white, stood with him in the chariot or rode the trace horses. A slave stood behind the conqueror holding a golden crown and whispering in his ear a warning that all glory is fleeting. The End Postscript. This film had its premiere on Wednesday, February 4th, 1970 at the Criterion Theater in New York before its roadshow release starting the following day. The film grossed an estimated $51,000 in its first week and eventually would gross $45 million, making it a very profitable movie for the studio. Patton won seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Scott won the Academy Award for Best Actor, but declined to accept the award. Now, this movie begins without showing the 20th Century Fox logo or any other indication that the film is starting. At military bases across the U.S., theater owners reported that soldiers in the audience would often stand up and snap to attention when they heard the movie's opening line, Ten Hut, assuming it to be a real call to attention. Soldiers who served under the real General George S. Patton said that the general's voice was surprisingly high-pitched, now, this can be heard in actual films and recordings of him. Pat himself said he used profanity so liberally in order to compensate for his high-pitched voice. The ivory-handled revolvers George C. Scott wears in the opening speech were George S. Patton's real-life revolvers. Those pistols are in the collection of the museum at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, New York. Now, in reality, George S. Patton slapped and berated two soldiers in Sicily. Private Charles Cole on August 3, 1943, and Private Paul Bennett on August 10th. Although it has been suggested Patton was sleep-deprived, he wrote an entry in his diary after slapping Cole, unrepentant in his actions or opinion that Cole was a coward. Patton was ordered by Supreme Commander General Dwight D. Eisenhower 
to apologize privately to the soldiers and hospital staff present. Also, the slapping incidents were kept secret from the public for months before the story was broken by reporter Drew Pearson, causing scandal not only for Patton's conduct, but accusations of cover-up on the part of the Army. Despite being mentioned dozens of times, Dwight Eisenhower is never seen or heard in the film. George C. Scott initially refused to film the famous speech in front of the American flag when he learned it would be used at the beginning of the film. He felt that the rest of his performance would not live up to that scene. So director Franklin J. Schaffner lied to Scott and told him that the scene would be put in either right after intermission or at the end of the film. Many of the quotes from the opening speech are real quotes from George S. Patton. However, not all of them were said at one time. Rather, this speech is an assemblage of many Patton speeches. George C. Scott filmed the opening speech in eight takes. Scott insisted that he deliver the complete speech each take rather than picking up lines according to camera angles. Francis Ford Coppola says in the DVD commentary that he wrote a draft screenplay in 1966 and then was fired from the film, in large part because Fox objected to opening the movie with Patton's speech. When the film finally went into production, Coppola's draft was dusted off and most of it was used in the final film. Oh, and the speech was used at the beginning of the movie. Although Francis Ford Coppola and Edmund H. North are credited as co-writers, they never worked together and actually never even met each other until they were collecting their awards. According to Carl Malden, George C. Scott caused a shooting delay by immersing himself in a ping-pong tournament against a world champion table tennis player. Scott, in full costume and makeup, kept losing to the champ, yet he was determined to win at least one set, even if they had to stand there playing all night. George C. Scott's alcoholism was a concern during the filming, and his castmates were asked to abstain from social drinking during the shoot. Carl Malden claimed that he was inspired by that experience to himself quit drinking. George C. Scott won the Academy Award for Best Actor and famously refused to accept it, claiming that competition between actors was unfair, disliking the Academy's voting process, and called the Academy Awards a big meat parade. Scott felt he hadn't really captured the full character of George S. Patton and would apologize to director Franklin J. Schaffner on the set for not fully realizing the complexity of the man. This was the impetus for Scott to push for the made-for-TV sequel, The Last Days of Patton. This is one of the few Oscar-nominated major films without a single female actor listed in the credits. There are only three lines of female dialogue in the film. James Edwards, who played Sergeant William George Meeks, General Patton's orderly, died of a heart attack before the picture was released. He was 51 years old. This is one of President Richard Nixon's favorite films. He had his own print and would often watch it in the White House, particularly before having to make an important military decision in Vietnam and Cambodia. He reportedly watched the film several times before ordering the invasion of neutral Cambodia in April 1970. In 2006, the Writers Guild of America selected Coppola's and Norse's adapted screenplay as the 94th best screenplay of all time. This film is ranked number 89 on AFI's 1998 list of the 100 Greatest American Films, and George S. Patton was listed as number 29 in AFI's 100 Heroes and Villains list. This film is included on Roger Ebert's Great Movies list. In 2003, this film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. The Academy Film Archive also preserved Patton 
in 2003. And of course, Patton is included among the 1001 movies you must see before you die, edited by Steven Schneider. Next time on the Bank of Marquis Movies Podcast. I come from Earth, a planet of outlaws. My name is Peter Quill. There's one other name you might know me by. Star-Lord. Who? Star-Lord, man. Legendary outlaw. Guys? Forget it. So here we are. A thief. Two thugs. An assassin and a maniac. But we're not gonna stand by as evil wipes out the galaxy. I guess we're stuck together. Partners. Are you telling me the fate of 12 billion people is in the hands of these criminals? Oh, yeah. Spent anyway. themselves the guardians of the galaxy this might not be the best idea and that's what's coming up next on the think of marquis movie podcast if you'd like to reach out to us Email us at bankofmarquis at gmail.com. That's B-A-N-K-O-F-M-A-R-Q-U-I-S at gmail.com. And check out the website, www.bankofmarquis.com. And until next time. I'm watching you, Wazowski. Always watching. <laughs>